Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Um, you know, it's... <laughs> It's evening here uh, where I am, which is Boulder, Colorado, uh, but my guest, uh, it, it's evening on Wednesday. Uh, my guest is going to be 
what the time it is where he's at is uh, Thursday morning. Um, and we live in a hyper interconnected, interdependent world. And my guest is a perfect example of that, not only because of where he's at, uh, but my guest will be coming in from Hong Kong uh, here in a couple minutes. Uh, and we're going to have a talk about this hyper interconnected, interdependent world that we live in. And, you know, problem solving from uh, an awareness of the interdependencies that we all have, the billions of, of variables that affect our, our planetary community, I think, is, is an important aspect of our problem solving process. And back almost a year ago now, when COVID-19 started, uh, I made the point that we will not be able to solve this challenge. We will not be able to solve the COVID-19 problem if we just treat it as a national crisis or even just as a global crisis. That the only way that we would be able to solve it is to treat it for what it really is, and that is a planetary crisis. COVID-19 is not a global crisis because we don't live on a globe. We live on an interconnected, interdependent planet. And uh, we are going to talk about, uh, my guest and I, James Chow, are going to talk about how we problem solve from a hyper-interconnected and interdependent point of view. And with that, let me introduce James Chow. James Chow is an international broadcaster that has earned a special reputation for his interviews with leaders in politics, science, and health, including Nobel Peace Laureates Jimmy Carter, Kofi Annan, and Mohammed Yunus. He has also interviewed Winnie Mandela, Christine Lagarde, Jane Goodall, Paul Kagame, Ban Ki-moon, Elton John, Ariana Huffington, among many, many others. He is the host of The China Current, a show that explores human stories shaping tomorrow's world, including poverty, climate change, and innovation. In an ongoing series on the COVID-19 pandemic, he has conversed on the record with leaders in the global response, including Jeffrey Sachs, Margaret Chan, Helen Clark, Filippo Grande, and Erna Solberg. Previously, he was a main anchor on China Central Television and guest presented on BBC World News. In 2016, he was appointed World Health Organization Goodwill Ambassador for Sustainable Development Goals and Health. He also formally served as UNAIDS Goodwill Ambassador. He has chaired and moderated international events with Bill Gates Angela Merkel, Jack Ma, Justin Trudeau, and Laura Bush. Born in London, he studied piano at the Royal Academy of Music and graduated from Cambridge University. James, how are you? I'm very well. Good morning, Ron. How is everybody out there? Everybody, everybody's doing, doing well. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year it is. You know, it's uh, Chinese New Year Eve here in Hong Kong. So in a couple of hours' time, everyone's going to get together for dinner. And I wish that we could have dinner together, Ron. But in a sense, I think we are, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So so what what's uh, some of the normal uh, festivities? I, I, I suppose that it's going to be very, very scaled back this year, right? Right. So normally what we would do is that tonight, the eve is the biggest night of the calendar. And of course, the calendar shifts according to what you said, according to the planet. So we measure it according to the moon's movement. So we call it Chinese New Year. We call it Lunar New Year, probably more correctly. And sometimes it's referred to as the spring festival because of the season that it ushers in. So what we would do is on the eve, which we call uh, Nian Sanshi, 
meaning the the last day, uh, colloquially. Uh, we get together for dinner with our family. You sit around the table. And, you know, Chinese dining tables tend to be round. So I've always thought of that as being very inclusive, where there isn't any protocol necessarily as to who sits where. But you're there together equally. And it's quite a democratic approach to things. And of course, the food is all shared because it's placed in the middle. Sometimes if you go to a, a cool Chinese restaurant, they'll have the Lazy Susan spinning around. So in that sense, everybody has access to everything. And I like that kind of feeling. This year, as you said, Ron, it's going to be scaled back. So um, I saw a lot of people out the streets yesterday buying food for their homes, but they're being encouraged not to gather as extended families to keep their household to their household. So cross fingers, everything goes well, because if we can hang tight and the numbers stay low here, we hear that restrictions will be eased significantly as of February 18th. So please keep us in your thoughts until then. Yeah, definitely. And happy new year to everybody who's celebrating Lunar New Year uh, around the world. And yeah. uh, uh, be safe, be safe with those celebrations. And what, what do you have planned for, the, for tonight? Tonight, I think it's just uh, my mom and I. Hopefully, my mom's watching this as well. And tomorrow, <laughs> the family. Exactly. And tomorrow, the family, uh, meaning just my uh, my brother, my sister-in-law, will just come to greet my mom. So that's the other custom that you usually go to all relatives' homes on different days of the new year. I think it usually lasts about 15 days. Here in Hong Kong, we celebrate a slightly shorter version, but in mainland China, they go the whole hog because this is their main calendar holiday. It's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, it's New Year. It's everything rolled into one that's that big. And in China, of course, because of COVID, um, they're also not traveling back to their hometowns. This is usually these few weeks here, the biggest annual human migration. So I think that's staggering. But this year, uh, I think a lot of people are staying at home because experiencing uh, some small outbreaks in different parts of the country. And I think that's a good idea. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to remind everybody, I see you all uh, joining in um, on the on the live stream, but join in the conversation too. join in uh, with your comments and your questions. Uh, put them in there. We'll see them and uh, we'll we'll get to them uh, when we can. Um, so, you know, I started out the, this episode uh, talking about our hyper interdependent world. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, we, we've always known that, but I think with COVID-19, uh, it's made it really, really obvious, really undeniable um, that, you know, this, this cliche that we're all in the same boat is, is not a cliche. It's, it's the reality <clears throat> of the world that we live in. And I know that you've, you know, you've traveled all around the world. You, you've interviewed world leaders. Uh, and, and I know that you have a lot of insight into leadership in a hyper interconnected and interdependent world. Is it, do you want to say anything about that, about the, the, the type of leadership that, because, you know, back, you know, decades ago, nation states could operate in relative isolation, right? Or at least in apparent relative isolation. But more and more, that's not a possibility anymore. Well, I think, Ron, as you said, and we still have the borders, the physical borders. And in some parts of the world, the borders, the physical borders are becoming more entrenched because people are afraid of people coming in. They're afraid about infringement on their values, for example. And some of those may be more hypothetical than others. But the fact is, is that the planet, as uh, you would tell us all the time, and I've interviewed you, I think I interviewed you in South Africa in 20. 
13. But right. all of these things, I mean, we, we have the privilege of sharing this planet rather than we are the occupants of it. We are the temporary custodians, guests of Mother Nature, so to speak. And, you know, leadership, the way that I saw it traditionally was through political leadership because of the work that I was doing on television interviewing political leaders. And they tended to be leaders um, at national level and leaders who led internationally at the UN and different agencies, for example. Um, but I think, first of all, as he said, that notion of leadership and statecraft has changed significantly even in these few years. And it's not just because of the United States. So that has had a huge impact and had a huge impression on uh, the way we communicate and interact with one another, but also because all these changes have risen together. Um, we talk about the role of social media. It's just changed the way that we think, the way that we communicate. And I think a lot of political leaderships haven't caught up with that. They've lost touch with their constituents, the people who voted them in. Uh, they've lost touch with the agenda. And so they've lost touch with the very people whom they're mandated to serve. And I think also another um, aspect of that, Ron, is that, you know, we talk about leadership a lot. And you can be leadership in your community. And I think during COVID-19, that has emerged as a very, very important facet of society, that you can be a leader no matter who or what you are. Your impact may be different, but your impact can be great. And at a time when we have all been thrown into this state of grief and mourning, when so many of us have retreated behind our doors in order to protect ourselves and to safeguard one another, that form of community leadership has been more important than ever. We saw in HIV and AIDS, which uh, is almost 40 years in June 2021, it will be 40 years since the first cases were formally identified. And those were in New York and San Francisco, uh, cases of five men. Um, and, and I think that there's so many lessons that we could learn from that. Political will, political leadership is critical because that's going to govern policy. But community leadership, advocacy and that agitating at the grassroots level. Sometimes it's more important than that. If we go back to the United States, and you'll be well aware of this, the first six years, I think it was, um, Ronald Reagan didn't mention the word AIDS in public on television, not until he was touched by the plight of his own friend, Rock Hudson. And that was the game changer. That was the pivot for him. Mm -hmm. So you see that during that whole time, millions of people probably unnecessarily died. We can't put an exact number to the lives that could have been saved had political leadership kicked in much faster. But what we do know is that community going out onto the streets and calling for action and demanding movement from your leaders does have an impact. Last thing I would say, Ron, on this is that while we can talk a lot about leadership, I think there's leadership in the form of followers, the yeah. people who follow those leaders. We can get too tied up in being leaders. As a friend of mine, Michael, once said, if everybody wants to be a leader, who's going to be a follower? So I think that succinctly wraps up that thought in presenting ideas as to we need good followers too. And it doesn't mean that you're worth anything less if you're a follower. You can help execute those visions and bring them to reality. Yeah, and I think part of part of effective leadership is to be a good follower as well, because it's it's not a, you know, a it's not binary, right? It's not black and white. People are in some aspects of their life are leaders, and some aspects of their life are followers. And I I think that both of those uh, skills uh, are dependent on each other. That you can't be a good follower without being 
have some type of leadership uh, or at least recognize good leadership skills. And you can't be a good leader without good followership skills. And, you, you know, you said something, you know, when you talked about the, the anecdote about Ronald Reagan and his, you know, not speaking the word AIDS uh, for three years, that I think is, is hitting the nail on the head of exactly what we want to talk about today. And that is, you know, he obviously the national, the U.S. national government was dealing with the AIDS crisis at the time, and they were dealing it from a macro level. They had they zoomed out to the big level, right? But part of what we want to talk about tonight is the need to zoom out to the big picture, but mm -hmm. in doing so, not lose those those worm's eye details. Are as our mutual friend Muhammad Yunus likes to say, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't lose the the worm's eye details. And so that Ronald Reagan anecdote is a perfect example is that when he was affected personally because a personal friend of his um, had, had AIDS, you know, that changed the whole equation. That, and I, that's a perfect example of what I like to call dolly zoom, right? It's this, cinema, yeah. uh, this, this term in cinematography where the camera is either you know, dollied back or rolled back as it's zoomed in uh, at the same time, right? And it, it, it changes our per perception of reality and it gives depth and height in, and into it. It gives, it, it gives more meaning to the scene. And so I think that is in everything that we do, if we keep those two views, and it's not only you know, zooming out while keeping the worm's eye details, it's also looking at the long-term effects while we keep the short-term effects in focus as well uh, is another uh, important, important aspect of that. I think Dolly Zoom Ron is what Instagrammers and influencers would call today the money shot. Okay. <laughs> it's a beautiful shot that, that yeah. as you said, comes out and moves at the same time. But it's right, nice. right. That was in, in Jaws and in, in Vertigo and a lot, a lot of other movies. And I, I you know, I, I talk about it so much now that I look for it, and I, you know, it's, it's a lot. It's used a lot more than, than you realize. But going back to what you were saying about about leadership, um, you know, I've heard you say that in response to this hyper-nationalism that we're seeing around the world, that you want to see hyper-internationalism. Can you, can you talk to that a little bit? You know, recently I've been talking, you know, I, I, actually let's go back to the end of 2017. I was interviewing a, a number of world leaders in the space of a very short period of time. Um, so there were people like David Cameron, who at the time was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, uh, George Osborne, uh, uh, Sorry, he was former Prime Minister George Osborne, who served as his Chancellor, and uh, we did uh, Professor Yunus and Christine Lagarde, and God bless him, Jimmy Carter, uh, Arianna Huffington. All these people we we filmed in the space of weeks, one block in Europe and one block in the United States. And um, at the time, one universal question that I asked them was, uh, we're witnessing a, a rise in inward thinking and nationalism and populism um, at this time, what are the mega trends that you would anticipate and how can we as ordinary citizens of this planet uh, respond to that and prepare for that? And that became a universal question that ran through that set of interviews. But also since then, unfortunately, it's become uh, much more present in our lives. That question has become more critical. And I don't think that necessarily we've had the answers to that. We're living in a world where uh, our borders may in some sense be more connected as COVID-19 has shown us. Um, but in the sense it's hyper-nationalism, this, um, I, I just see it this, as this pumping motion um, where everything is inflated, everything is expanded, everything is blown out. Um, and it seems that the shorter something is or the bigger something is or the more 
sensational something is that it grabs our attention. And in fact, I think what would be quite nice is just to retreat and to return to our roots. And I think COVID-19 offers that, um, I wouldn't say reset because Tom, someone told me I say not to use that word, um, but I don't think we should reset. I think what we should do is stabilize mm -hmm. and we should try and calm ourselves down, try and take a step back and try and look at the problem from multiple angles rather than just uh, forcing it through, um, you know, the circle, through the square peg as we're used to doing. Humanity has shown itself to be extremely resilient time and time again, not only in this current crisis, but I think what also we draw from here is that humanity is very arrogant and we've seen that time and time again that has been a common feature throughout history that we really fail to learn from this i was in new york in september 2019 at the general assembly and we've seen each other at the general assembly before rom and this time when i was there i did an event with a global preparedness monitoring board which is this independent task force that was set up by the UN Secretary General or mandated by him um, to uh, investigate what will happen when the next pandemic occurs. Three quick findings, a pandemic will occur. So finding one, um, economies will be upended. Finding two, there will be a serious loss to human life. And finding three, which I don't think we've fully seen yet, uh, is this um, explosion of social chaos. And that's what really worries me when I look at different communities around the world as lockdowns become extended. But even beyond the lockdowns, how are these governments going to keep people in jobs? What are the future of jobs everywhere, in communities everywhere? So that that's a big concern for me. And I think all the time that is pumping this hyper-nationalism that we already had, so yeah. much so that the seams have already busted yeah, so I definitely want to talk about, you know, how a medical pandemic can turn into a social pandemic. Yeah. Um, but I, I do want to focus just a little bit for, for a, a couple minutes on the medical part of it, too, because, you know, you have a deep background with both the WHO and the UN. Uh, you've been a goodwill ambassador in those organizations. And I know that there's a case study between looking at the re response to Ebola uh, and the response to COVID-19. Can you speak to that, like maybe compare and contrast those two um, situations? The one thing that was very different, Ron, I mean, you would know this much more than I because you work in the region of Africa as well with your projects, is that Ebola was contained to largely a few countries. But the lesson of Ebola, that it's, it continues to come back. It's continued to come back since the 1970s. I have a special connection with Ebola, only that uh, the first person who brought me into AIDS in the 2000s was Peter Piot, who is currently the head of the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. But back in 1976, was a co-discoverer of Ebola as a very young Belgian uh, laboratory scientist. Um, and so the, the lesson that pandemics will end, um, and, and this one will end too, is also less than that pandemics can return either in their current form or in mutated form. And mutations are to be expected. It's just that some mutations have completely gone out of control. The second part is that with Ebola, and thank God that this happened, they were able to restrict it to those few countries. So in a sense, it was a bit like COVID-19 or COVID-19 was like the Ebola of the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s. But what they managed to do very well was to ensure that it didn't go further. And I think again, what we saw was incredible community leadership, 
married with the political will that we saw over there. They put people's lives first in many instances rather than the economy because they understood that without health, you don't have a healthy economy. Right. You don't have healthy societies. So the physical health and the, and the, and the good well-being and the good mental well-being is the foundation. It's a bit like saying, uh, I don't know, you've got a great pair of shoes, but if your feet and the bones and the, uh, the podiatry of that part of your body and the physiology isn't fixed, then it doesn't matter how great those shoes look. They'll never be able to fulfill their potential. And so I always look at human potential. I mean, you always look at human potential as well. But that was the lesson. Quickly want to say over here that one thread that uh, travels from Ebola to COVID-19 is the ongoing need for health workers. We're 18 million short of health workers, be they nurses, midwives, um, doctors, and people who support the whole system, including uh, um, janitors in our uh, health facilities. They're extremely important. Um, and, and we're 18 million short before COVID-19. What are we going to do to seize that moment so that we stretch it into long-term action? There is one person who's pretty remarkable, an American critical care physician called uh, Dr. Vanessa Kerry. She is also the um, CEO the founder of Seed Global Health. And that notion of a seed being planted and then flowering is, I, I suppose, what, what uh, gave her the idea for this name because it reflects the nature of their work, which was a response to the 2014 uh, West Africa Ebola outbreak to, um, to grow health workers. And I think that they have um, now trained and put in place I, I, I'm guessing here is I think it's approaching 10 or maybe over 10,000 health workers in their short lifetime. And so it's organizations like this that carry on the work, whether or not there is a pandemic ongoing, that work continues. I mean, Ron, what was it like for you, though, when you think back, because it's almost 10 years, we say it's 40 years since AIDS in 2021. 2021 is also exactly 10 years since you joined this collaborative experience that was the International Space Station and achieved and completed a number of spacewalks. I mean, what did leadership look like in the space of a confined physical space, but also knowing that you were serving far many more people than the people in that shuttle? You know, it's funny that you asked that because, uh, you know, I guess we're 20 something minutes into this conversation. Uh, and I, I was wondering, what is this like for you? You're so used to being the interviewer, uh, you know, asking the questions. I was wondering how long it would take before you started to restrain myself <laughs> because you kept on sending me, you kept on giving me questions. But you know, actually, I'm I'm genuinely, sincerely, you yeah, know, I mean, interested in what you. It, it's all about the mission. It's all about everything else drops away. You know, when we're on the International Space Station, there's not the U.S. crew and the Japanese crew and the Russian crew or whoever. It's just the crew. And we have a mission and the number one mission is to survive, right? And so we do everything that we can to protect each other, to watch out for each other uh, and to contribute to something bigger than our individual selves, right? And I think that's, that is the mindset that's gonna get us through all of these crises, whatever, whatever they, they might be. And you know, I, I've been saying this over and over again, I've been saying this since the beginning is we are paying a horrible, terrible price through this pandemic, but we have the opportunity to get a benefit for the price that we're already paying. We have, a, we have an opportunity to come out the other side stronger, more resilient, more unified. And all the things that you just talked about, you know, all the, you know, the, 
the issues that are being exposed with, you know, not enough healthcare workers, for instance, and the infrastructure. You look at the the vaccine rollout right now around the world, and and particularly in the U.S. right now, you know, there's some pretty big logistic issues that that can be solved. And so when we look at all these things, it's it's a perfect learning example to be able to deal with the next big thing that that comes at us, or maybe it's another pandemic that, like you said, this is not going to be the last pandemic. And so in the space program, what we're constantly doing is looking at those worst case scenarios, you know, and having plans in place ready to pull off the shelf in a a heartbeat uh, that we practice over and over and over again uh, so that we can maintain our survival and, and so we can accomplish our mission. And so, you know, you train for years for a space mission and probably 80 to 90 percent of all of that training is for stuff that you hopefully will never do and probably will never do. And so we need to look at this as a planetary community, as a planetary civilization. You know, what happens on one side of the world affects everything else. And one question I do want to ask you, you know, you're a British citizen, you're not a Chinese citizen, but you've, you know, you're, you're living in Hong Kong right now. You've got extensive uh, experience and, and time living in China. What, how do you compare um, the response to COVID that you saw in China versus what you've seen in el- elsewhere in the world, and particularly the U.S.? I think that that response um, has improved over time. And what we're seeing here are local responses as well as national responses. So I think um, one thing that they adapted into their program early on was that if, for example, they saw a number of cases in a particular community, they would lock down that community straight away and perhaps uh, some area around that, but not necessarily the whole city. So they tried doing citywide lockdowns and citywide screening and testing, um, which um, was effective. But how many times can you do that, even in a country which is centrally governed uh, versus 50 states and a district capital in the US, which I think makes it a lot more complex. Um, But you've got 1.4 billion people almost, and you can't keep shutting down cities everywhere, nor necessarily does one have to, if the screening allows you to keep the infection caseloads low in the first place. So what they did in Qingdao is that they tested 11 million people in about five days. Um, But what I think you can do better than that is when they saw a number of cases emerge around a market in Beijing, they shut down that area around the market without necessarily drawing in the rest of this huge capital that they have to deal with. Um, And so I think you can say it's called living with COVID. But in fact, I would say it's actually adapting to the realities of the current settings of COVID in your community. I think the danger of saying living in COVID, which I don't think they've done, is where we've seen in other places, political messaging where you say living in COVID, and it's almost as if to say, well, we give up. It's here, it's here to stay. And so therefore, we'll wait for that vaccine for whenever it arrives, whenever we can purchase it, and whenever we can roll it out and get you a second dose and store it and logistically deliver it. But that, I think, is a mistake to do because um, I think we've seen this vaccine nationalism, or as the UN has very strongly called it, vaccine apartheid, which goes back to where uh, we met, Ron, in South Africa. I think we met the first time in Johannesburg right. eight years ago. You, you, you've got to be very careful 
in protecting your own people, but at the same time, sharing your resources. In fact, when you share the resources, you're protecting your own people back exactly. first. Exactly. Um, and, and that's the one thing. But I think what China, um, I think what one can draw from the experience, but I would hasten to add here, everybody's settings are very, very different. So it does not mean that what works for them works for other people. And I certainly don't think that they will try to say that. Um, what has worked for them in a huge country with very, very few cases is the screening of infections and also using innovation. So, for example, apps like WeChat, where people have health codes, where it's red, yellow, green. It's like a traffic light system so that you don't introduce high risk people into certain communities. And I think that has worked for them. Whether that works for anybody else is is a completely different story. Yeah. One, one of the big... Um challenges, I think, is is finding the balance between, you know, dealing with a, with a pandemic and balancing that against people's personal freedom, personal yeah. privacy and, and everything else. And, you know, in a, in a hyper polarized, hyper politicized society like the like the U.S., where something as simple as wearing a mask has been politicized. Uh, it's a, if you're wearing a mask, somehow that's a political has become a political statement to some to some folks, uh, and not wearing a mask is a political statement to some folks. Um, that you know, it's it, I think it's really challenging to find that balance that that balance between the greater good. You know, it's a, it's a dolly zoom situation again. You know, you're zooming out to the greater good, but you can't lose personal freedom and personal privacy in the, in the process. And so, I, I don't know if you have anything to, to say. I know that's a really challenging um, point, but. I think personal freedom and personal privacy is really important. I mean, in the age of social media where our data is being uh, collected, harvested and misused in so many ways, I think that we are right to go out there and insist that our data is being respected. At the same time, and in parallel to that, though, I would also say there's a certain freedom in living. And I think it's uh, heartbreaking to see people who are becoming infected. You don't just become infected, sit out for two weeks, and you come out you know, smelling like roses. There are people who are uh, experiencing severe long COVID symptoms. A friend of mine, Robin Gorner, over in the UK, has been an avid campaigner uh, as a person who is experiencing long COVID symptoms herself, but who wants to share that with the wider community too. Uh, she's generated a movement which I think has been slow to get off the ground because people are still being whiplashed by these millions of infections that we're now talking about in every part of our shared planet. Personal freedoms is important and you know I think people are rightfully suspicious about um, about how they're being um, leveraged in this time when we're being distracted by a matter of life and death. But life and death is really important too. I think it, you do have a civic duty, you do have a responsibility. And I would say that the experience in Asia uh, more widely, which is very different going back to, your, to, to what you brought up there, Ron, is that in Asia, there's a different approach to things. Um, I think it's cultural where you tend to do just do what you do. I mean, when we grew up, um, I remember my family had a great emphasis on respect for our teachers and for pillars of society. They didn't necessarily have to be presidents and prime ministers. We didn't know presidents and prime ministers growing up. Um, but we knew school teachers. We knew the lollipop lady who stood there to guide road traffic uh, when we came out of school. I don't know if you, do you have that in the States, Ron? Where, um, yeah, yeah, but we don't call them lollipop ladies. 
You do. And they usually, they, there were always ladies at that time, but I, I hope very much that they're men now as well. But at least I don't think we call them that. I've never heard. Well, what did you call them? Did you call them lollipop cross, ladies? Crossing guards. Cross, crossing guards. And mm -hmm. so they would stand there, and we had huge respect for all these people. I don't think that was necessarily the case for other people of, of different um, descent in, in, in London where we grew up. But I think certainly with the Asian um, mindset in China, in Japan, in South Korea, in Vietnam, um, there's a there's a sort of a default respect for um, authority, um, and I don't think it's a blind uh, respect for authority. People are still considered and thoughtful. They know what's going on, right? But in COVID, where that's come in very useful is that when the government says. Uh, wear a mask, you do it. It didn't have to be mandatory before they did it. And where you look back to the experience outside my window here in Hong Kong, um, it's it was very different because we, you know, we're a small city of about seven, eight million people, but we took a hard hit from uh, SARS in 2003. At that time, I was uh, just starting out in the early 2000s, my newsroom career. So that was a story that I covered extensively in avid influenza and all these other influences that occurred. So we're very sensitized to um, community spread and community outbreak. And I think we're also very um, desensitized to the issue of wearing masks. It's just something that you get in the pharmacy and you wear it. People wear it anyway when they've got the flu. Um, and when they have the cold and there isn't a stigma attached to it. I think there would be a stigma if you walk around without a mask or whether it's hanging off the bottom of your chin or off the loops. And we don't wear face coverings. We do wear proper masks. So they tend to be surgical masks. Sometimes people use reusable masks that the government has given them, but they're layered with filters inside. So they're properly protected in, in you know, I would say in the vast majority of cases. So I think it's culture, but we also had to learn our hard lesson. We're not better than anybody else. It's just that we went through a crisis of our own in the early 2000s. And I think in some ways, we're still reeling from that, obviously. Well, that's, I mean, having the humility to learn from others is, is an important thing. We can't learn every, every, anything if we think we already know everything. And so that's a good example of how we should be, you know, sharing this information. And so I'm going to make another pitch. You guys okay. join, join this conversation. We want you in this. I see, I see you guys watching. So, so, so be a part of this conversation. Don't be shy. Yeah. Don't be shy. Doesn't you, have, you have permission to join this conversation. Um, I do want to talk about go back to what we, we hinted at before talking about the secondary effects of health, right? And what, what happens when either you know, the health of us individually, the health of our communities, the health of our societies, or the health of our planet goes south and creates problems, you know, the chaos that that brings. And you, you, you touched on it a little bit, but I think it's, it's probably important for us to have, go a little deeper in that conversation and talk about that. I mean, you, I, think, I think you said, uh, I, I won't be able to quote you directly but, or exactly, but something along the lines of you can't have health of the economy if, you're, if your people are, are not healthy, right? Mm -hmm. So I paraphrase there, but um, how, about to, how about we talk about that for a little bit, about those secondary effects? Um, I mean, I say that to myself every day. I mean, it's been really difficult for me to stay in uh, good physical and mental health during this whole COVID period. So, of course, you know, your weight shoots up and there are other problems that come with that as well. So I think they're going to be secondary, secondary impacts of COVID just uh, simply from, from being inside. My mom had multiple flare-ups in her knee and her lower back, you know, experiencing severe acute pain and also wider spasms because of decreased physical activity, because you're scared to go out, you're scared about interacting with people. Um, and, and also 
also we're very fortunate. I mean, we live in a building that has its own garden, um, but even then it's still difficult for us. Uh, and also I think just this, the surge of information that hits you, that, that keeps you inside because it makes you so scared. I think you should respect the virus, but I don't think you should be scared of it. I don't think that you should live in this permanent state of fear and anxiety because a lot of that fear and anxiety has been pumped up by what we read and by what we hear. And what's happening, say, in one part of the world is not necessarily the experience of what's happening where you're watching from your armchair in your sitting room. So that's one thing. But, you know, obviously, we know that most viruses come from, uh, uh, um, have a zoonotic origin. And also, at least there's an intermediary animal involved. So you you have the zoonotic origin, and then it makes that jump from animal to humans. But usually that's done through uh, an intermediary animal, as we call it. I remember being at WHO, and we used to, um, look at this in great detail that you'd have the head of the World Health Organization with the head of the OIE, which is uh, the Organization of Animal Health. It was very, very important to look at that. But going back to the long term um, impacts, the secondary impacts, they're going to be physical because we already know that in terms of breathing. Peter Piot, uh, who I mentioned earlier, had a very, very severe. Uh, experience with COVID-19. He spoke and wrote about it very movingly in several scientific magazines. He came onto the China Current as well. Um, this The very labored breathing that he had for a long time after that, the loss of smell um, and, and, uh, and the general weakness and enormous fatigue are uh, some of the experiences that we're collecting and hearing from first-hand witnesses, first-hand participants of this awful, awful um, global outbreak. So that's the physical long COVID. And then I think there's a long COVID for all of us in, in terms of being in lockdown for, for a very long period of time, our health, our economies, our communities. But I don't know. I mean, Ron, because I interviewed you recently um, for the China Current, and I've known you for now close to a decade but because you don't really talk very much about your work in space unless you're on stage I mean as friends you don't bring it up very often um, so watching back on the video that we did together I was so blown away by what you achieved with your crewmates in your career and before that in the United States Air Force and what do you think that I mean, if I ask you the same questions, I want to know this for myself as well and for everybody watching this. What do you think are the mega trends or the nuanced trends uh, that are emerging and that you'll say it's the beginning of 2021, get yourself ready for this? Is it physical or is it more than that? Well, there's a whole bunch that are coming at us. I think the um, aftershocks of the pandemic are going to be big. We, you know, we, we've discussed some of the mental health issues around the world, you know, and you, you just brought up a, a bunch of them, you know, um, some of them because, because of you're being isolated, some of them because you're dealing with financial uh, issues, you know, people can't pay their rent and have lost their, their jobs or in some cases lost their businesses. And, uh, you know, there's, there is an increase in, unfortunately, in the suicide rate, there's an increase in, in domestic abuse. There's, um, and, that's going to that's going to be a long term thing, I, I believe, because uh, it's comp the, those effects are compounding on, on each other, right? I think we're. I mean, I I know that sounds really down, but I, I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. So there, I 
you know, we started out this whole conversation about talking about how interdependent everything is, right? And so one of the other interdependencies is, you know, you talked about it, this information overload, is we are all bombarded by more information than we could possibly process. And that information has been focused through commercially driven e echo chambers that are feeding us what we think we, we want to hear, what, what they think that we want to hear. And so I think that's a, a mega trend that's coming is, is hopefully we're going to have a way to start discerning truth. There's so many people that are so fatigued at trying to find truth. And I, I'm going to throw the question back to you as, a, as an international global journalist. Um, you know, journalism is going to be uh, one of the megatrends. Uh, the shift in journalism is going to be a megatrend. You know, some, everyone in the world is just is just crying out for truth. You know, we want to know what the real information is, what the real data. We're, we're bombarded with so many cons conspiracy theories and, and falsehoods and everything else um, that shape our opinions and shape our actions uh, and shape our society. Uh, we have got to get, you know, we, we've, we've coined this, you know, post-truth world. Uh, we can't live in a post-truth world. There's, there, that's, there's no way that we can function as a civilization in, in, without truth, without truth data. So um, do you see any megatrends coming on, on that <laughs> from a journalist? I do. I mean, I, I do. And they create, you know, we've seen in instances for commercial profit, for example, people creating the fear and then playing off that fear, then profiting from that fear. And then going back to the journalism, I think that the role of journalism, in a sense, has never been more important than it is today, never more important than what it will be today. But I still see, you know, a lot of the media outlets taking entrenched political positions. There's a lack of the softness that comes with life. Um, they still see things in, in binary and from binary positions. And maybe um, I'm careful in saying this um, for different reasons, but I don't refer to myself as a journalist anymore. I call myself an international broadcaster because that's the nature of my work and the geographical footprint of my work. Um, but I don't describe myself as a journalist anymore because I've seen some shocking experiences of journalism everywhere um, and not confined to any pocket of the world um, where I think um, they've really taken advantage of us as their subscribers, as their constituents. Um, and so um, I do see a lot of problems today as having been um, uh, created and inflated by um, by this sector, by this industry. And, and, and I'm not necessarily talking about newspapers and television stations. I'm even talking about um, people who set up YouTube channels and uh, do not understand that a certain set of values uh, have to be the guide and steer of your work. In terms of trends ahead, um, I think that uh, we need to be very realistic about how much science can do to play catch up on um, a work of nature, which is this pandemic. Um, first of all, I think it's extraordinary that um, we've had not only one vaccine, but multiple options for us, that we're not relying on one pharma, but we have a number of um, um, 
uh, options in front of us theoretically um, to to use. And I say theoretically because, as you talked about there earlier, Ron, there's it's very different from having an AstraZeneca or a Moderna or a Sinopharm, Zinovac, um, and then having it in your arm. That's very, very different. And um, I, I think that the vaccine has become, unfortunately, a vaccine race like the space race that we saw. I mean, you would know about this because you come from that history. Your collaborative history, I humbly think, is a, a reaction to um, some of the aggression that came before that, where not only countries, but two worlds in a Cold War were pitted against one another for good reasons or not. And I don't want to see that happen with um, another aspect of our humanity, which is there to um, not only just to protect us from the virus, but is there to save our lives. Um, I, um, I, I hope that COVID-19 doesn't become normalized. I hope that when we speak in years from now that we'll still be shocked uh, by anyone who has become infected that we embrace them and that we don't stigmatize people with COVID-19, which is another um, aspect that we have not yet fully addressed. If I was infected in a place like Hong Kong, I would be very worried about what people would say about me and the people who would keep a distance from me. Mm. Um, and perhaps that's more heightened in a place like Hong Kong because there are low caseloads here. But um, I worry that stigma will come back in a way that it still prevents and acts as a barrier to access for people living with HIV and AIDS. That's what I worry about. The caring for humanity, the reaching out to one another. I worry about um, the rollbacks on the gains that we've made. Do you know that we, I mean, you probably know this, but extreme poverty is back on the rise for the first time in 25 years. We saw um, a UN agency helping to fund a food program in uh, a, a Southwark, a southern part of London in the UK. Um, we, we're all those fears that we earmarked at the beginning of the pandemic have unfortunately become true, the domestic violence and all that. But I do afterwards, you know, run with your permission. I wonder if we could speak a little bit about the racism that has surged in this period is not unique to this time, but has just just gone on a roller coaster ride, and that hasn't stopped. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's a good segue into the whole time you were speaking. the the same The same things kept coming to me uh, over and over and over again, which is which is fear versus awe and wonder, right? And yeah. you talked about the space race, and you, you know, I, I not long ago, five minutes ago. I started talking about all, the, you asked me about megatrends and I gave you some very negative megatrends that are coming our way. I believe that in relatively speaking, those are short-term things. Yeah. That when we, when we stretch out the time horizon a little bit, I, I take on a much more optimistic view. I think that we are going to be a people who basically say enough's enough. A lot of what we're seeing, I believe, are the death throes of the old way of doing things. And I think that we're, we're going to cross into a new human epoch where a lot of these things uh, we, don't, we, we just don't put up with anymore, right? Can I, can I yeah. fill in the, the view here shortly? Because for anyone who doesn't know, Ron always speaks about awe and wonder. Ron, because you, you, do you want to just elaborate on what, why you say awe and wonder is space, which is a contrast to fear and anxiety that we live in? Yeah, I think, 
thanks thanks for bringing that up, James. Because ba basically, I, I think there's two really really big motivators of action. We are, we're either motivated by fear, or we're motivated by awe and wonder. This this amazement of the miracles of that surround us constantly, of the beauty of the world, of, of love and compassion and altruism, and, and especially the view of our planet from space. That that fills us with awe, right? And both of those are very, very powerful motivators, but only one of those, I believe, motivates us to do long-term action, and that's on wonder. I think fear is a very, very powerful motivator of short-term action. And you brought up racism, and racism, racism is based on fear. And you brought up the space race, and the space race was based on fear. And a lot of the things that we're seeing around the world right now are fear-based, the hyper-nationalism, the racism, the, you know, the... Uh, you know, being afraid of people who have contracted COVID. I mean, obviously you need to, to take the proper precautions, but th that doesn't mean you stigmatize, right? When you cross the line into stigmatizing, you, 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 you're into a new territory. And I think this post-truth world that we're in is all fear-based. It's commercial, but this is, they, they monetized fear. We have monetized fear by creating these echo chambers that feed us the fear-based information that we seem to seem to crave. All of that, I believe, is relatively short-term stuff. I think that we, the, the real mega trend is we're going to say enough is enough, and we are going to have truth data. We are going to have um, uh, a, a real reconciliation of, of racism. Uh, we're and, and that stems from you know, unearthing the fact, uh, realizing the fact that we have all these artificial shadow illusions of separation. Uh, we have all of these things that we've defined, whether that's our religions, our nationalities, our, our, the color of our skin, whatever it is, as defined as differences, right? But when you're, in a, when you're in a situation of awe and wonder or in a situation of fear, both of those things can, can dis disappear. Because, uh, you know, the first real experience I've ha had of this was in combat. And in combat, all of those perceived dis differences just melted away. All that mattered was... Are you on our side? Are you on our tribe or the enemy tribe? You know, are you are you in our community? Are you fighting with our community or, or the, the other community? And in space, all of that melted away just because of this undescribable, all-encompassing, uh, infinite beauty that is unveiled before. And it's a it's a beauty, and and I and I think the source of that beauty is this inherent wholeness, this inherent underlying unity that is so obvious from space and it makes us look ridiculous when you see the beauty of where we live and the, and the paradise this oasis in the blackness of space this gift that we've all been given and then you think of all the things that we quarrel over and fight over and complain about it just it just seems ridiculous that all those things fade into insignificance and i think we are on a path to being able to capitalize on on wonder, the miraculous on wonder that surrounds us constantly, we're 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 eventually and slowly coming to embrace that and to appreciate that and to make that our driving force, not the fear that presently is our is our driving force. But Ron, there's always a question I've wanted to ask you, but I never felt um, it was appropriate for me to ask you such a private question. But since we're on the public platform, hey, let's ask you over here. Um, when you were flying F-16 um, jets, 
I think in Operation Desert Storm, and you can correct me on the details. And you said that it was there was one occasion where you ejected from your seat right before um, certain death. Um, I don't know the circumstances around that. Perhaps you can fill us in. But do you have time to think about the mortality of life at that point? And if so, what did you think about? Yeah, so so the the I did eject from an F-16. It wasn't during combat. It was a, a few years before. It was on a training mission um, for that. And in that particular case, I ejected uh, 4.3 seconds before the jet hit the ground and less than a second before I would have been outside the ejection envelope. So if I waited even on one more second, I would not have survived the ejection. And in those situations, there's there is no time to think. You're just you're just going on your training and and you know. And, and survival mode. I mean, it was obvious that I had a choice, hit the ground and sitting in the jet or don't, or get out of the jet. Uh, so that, and how long did you, what was the window to make that decision? So the reason, and, and it, it's a little bit, it's a longer story. So I, I'm going to, I'll save that for, for another time. But my focus was in, in, first of all, trying to save the jet, trying to figure out how I can land this thing and, and get it back. The, I had an engine failure on, uh, on takeoff in an F-16. There's only one engine in an F-16. That rapidly shifted from trying to save the jet to trying to minimize the aftermath of a crash that was about to happen. And so I was trying to steer it into a a good place. Um, And then I remember the last maneuver that I tried to do to get it into an even better place, the aircraft went out of control and, and went the opposite direction. And so a light bulb came on, you know, like a switch just got thrown that said, there's no reason for you to be here anymore because the jet's not doing what you want it to do. You can go. <laughs> so I, I, I reached down, pulled the handle, ejected. Uh, and again, if I waited in another second, even another second, I would I would have not survived. So if the jet was continuing to do what I was asking it to do, I, I probably wouldn't be here right now. Thank God for the bomb. <laughs> I mean, you, and the, the training and the instinct to follow those. I told you, right, it's important to have good followers. That's right. That's it's right. It's really important to have good followers and that you responded to what you were trained to do. Yeah, I'm going to pop something up from uh, Luana. Um, just to, to maybe paraphrase this, I, I think what she's saying here is that um, we, we, need to, we need to broaden our perspective, right? We need to broaden our experience base. And if we get too narrowly focused on what's right in front of us, our own um, – experiences in our own uh, small committee communities or even in our own nations that we're, we're missing the bigger picture. Hopefully, hopefully I didn't paraphrase that too much, but that's basically what I I got out of that note. Um, And so, and she, she shared her, you know, time in, in, in China and, um, and adopting a child and um, seeing, seeing the bigger picture uh, through that. And so uh, I I think that's a big part of it. And I think um, the internet is going to help there. You know, especially when we connect the two billion creative problem-solving minds to the global conversation through the internet, who are presently don't have internet access. You know, I believe not only will we find solutions we never dreamed of coming from places we've never heard of, but the world will become smaller. We'll be able to experience each other's culture more. We'll be able to have friends all over the world, like like we like we do now. Um, and I mean, we're having this conversation. You're in Hong Kong. I'm in Colorado. And uh, the more we do that, the more we can expose. Uh, different folks to, to different cultures and experiences, um, you know, that diversity is, is a source of, of unparalleled strength and enduring strength. 
Uh, it's not something to to root out. We don't want to be a homogenous, <laughs> you know, seven point whatever billion people. We want to uh, keep our keep those things that make us distinct, uh, and and that is definitely a source of strength. I think China is going to be really exciting coming up. I think one country that we don't talk about enough in the world, uh, probably because there's a larger economy in the same region, is India. I'm um, just blown away by what this country does and its people are are so talented and hungry um, for life than they have right now. And uh, I think when you look at the 50 plus countries in the African region, be it from the north to sub-Saharan Africa, to, I've been to Mali in the west, um, by by Guinea and Senegal and 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 the different histories, um, some of them very tragic uh, that have shaped them. Uh, you talk about internet penetration growing. I look at the one billion people plus in Africa, and I think, wow, that's that's a very very fascinating place uh, going forward. And of course, you know, one of the things that I miss most about um, about COVID nineteen, Ron, is um, going back home to the UK, to London, um, to see um, all the things that were familiar to me being born there and growing up there. But I really miss being where you are, not necessarily in Colorado, because I've never been there, but um, to America. You know, last year, the year, the year up to COVID-19, I was there six times. I loved it so much every time I went there. And I think if we go by numbers, the, the most friends I have are in the States and I really miss that part. And of course I miss being with my UN family, be that in New York and especially at WHO in Geneva. It's really, um, there've been some very painful times in the last um, 18 months, some very, very painful times. And I'm sure that that pales in comparison to what a lot of you guys are experiencing right now. I, I um I think we should be shocked and I think we should be um, we should set high expectations of the people who are paid to serve our needs. Yeah. And I think we should help them along the way as well. Yeah. Well, James, we're, we're coming to the end of our, our time here for the for this live portion. We're going to continue on here for the for the record only uh, portion. But I just wanted to wrap this up. First, I want to ask you a question, um, which is. I think I know the answer to this. I just want to check. How many cities in the world have you and I hung out together in? Um, Johannesburg, New York. Um, oh, I don't know. Where else, Ron? Bangkok. Bangkok. I think, that, yeah, I think I that, that. That, that might be it. I think that's it. Is that it? I, I think that's it. I'm sure there are more. There might, there might be more. I, were you in Bogota when... Uh, no, I didn't go. Okay. We're talking about One Young World, which is this incredible right. uh, conference where Ron and I first met. Ron was the keynote speaker over there. And Ron, I remember when I first met you because we were out in the green backstage area. I was there. You were on stage, I think. And um, your wonderful family um, was backstage as well, your wife. And um, there were a pair of... Google Specs. Were they called Google Specs? Everyone was getting very excited about in 2013 where you could say... Google, Google Glass. It was called Google Glass. Yeah. What is it? What was it? Hey, Google. What yeah. was it? What was the word? Was it Hey, Google? I, I think so. I don't or know. Something like that. And it was like seeing the Turin Shroud in front of me. And I was just <laughs> sitting there minding my own business. And I saw 
the spectacle sitting beside me on the table. And I said, and I jumped up and said, are those the Google, is that Google Glass? And um, you very kindly let me try it on. I think you probably thought that I was, uh, who is this person? But I got very <laughs> excited. But then I was speaking with your family and we were speaking about loss and grief because yeah. that time I think we'd both experienced something in our respective families which which bonded us and you know we've been unbreakable since Ron yeah I yeah and I, I think that conversation was mainly with Carmel yeah so I, I want to close though with maybe each of us taking a turn to 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 you know we've 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 painted pe pessimism and we've pe painted optimism, I think, uh, throughout this conversation. But I want to leave this on an optimistic thing. And, and, and maybe each of us just take a, a couple of moments to, to describe some of the positive things we see in the next you know, year or so. You go first. <laughs> um, the person who continues to be our um, gathering points we have our own friendship of course with you and with Carmel I didn't see her name earlier because I wasn't sure whether this being a public platform whether you wanted that or not so I was trying to just work my way around that um yeah, so I, might, got, I, might be, I might be in trouble right now we'll see Carmel how are you <laughs> um so I have my friendships with you individually and I have a friendship with you together and and with your children with your son but um one son but then um we're also brought together by um, Professor Muhammad Yunus, who you may or may not know was is this wonderful person who went from village to village in Bangladesh, especially in the 70s, um, creating a micro loan system for villagers, only giving them to women because he felt that they were the financially responsible figureheads of each household. And um, these tiny loans in what became Grameen Bank and what led to him winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. And he has a family of people around him like Dom and Lamia, who we're all close to and, and Hans. And and um, I, I would just go back to what um, our mentor says, Ron, if I may be, be so presumptuous to call Professor Yunus that to us. Um, he would talk about this being a marvelous opportunity to um, start again, because obviously something was extremely broken in our system for us to have got to this point, whether it be our disrespect for the biosphere, for nature, for the planet, um, our disrespect for uh, each other in the lack of civic duty that we have seen uh, around the world, um, uh, and um, the the lack of respect um, for our financial systems. Um, we went through a horrendous financial crisis in the late 2000s. What did we take from that? The big players are still the big players as well. Um, the wealth of the few have become the wealth of the fewer. And so now is this opportunity, but we have to take it to say, um, well, you know, I want to participate and I'm going to find a way to be included in this as well. And we have seen people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk get rich over time, but there's also a reason for that. I don't think we should be necessarily despondent because we're retreated behind our doors. We're buying more from places like Amazon. 
but there is a great way to be a part of it. And I think e-commerce is one of those ways. We've seen it in China on a platform called Taobao, where you can set up your own marketplace. And people call it the eBay of Asia, but I don't think it really is. There's so much more that you can do. It's allowed migrant workers. There are currently 277 million migrant workers in China, people who work far away from their homes, mostly, uh, who leave their children with their with their elderly parents to raise. And e-commerce has allowed people to be able to go back to their home villages, back to their towns, because courier services are very affordable in China, delivery services. And you can sell anything. And you see many people not only creating whole new lives for themselves, but they're also able to, for example, create ethnic minority costumes. They're able to play on the uh, heritage of their places where they come from to make a living. I mean, who would have believed that? And at the same time, care for their parents and be with their children and raise them, hopefully, to be good citizens. So I think that's one of the trends coming up that I know we're scared of the digital, but I think the digital has been here for quite some time already. Embrace it. Don't be afraid of it. And also, I think um, I I just would like to also add that um, on two points that um, as a person who is extremely proud to be British, I've always said I'm 100% British and I'm 100% Chinese. That's the beauty of being in the planet at this time, that we don't need to trade off one for the other Um, and 100% Asian, um, especially East Asian, I would say, because of the horrific um, physical and verbal attacks on, um, you know, I would say my brothers and sisters, but they're your brothers and sisters as well. Anybody, because they're human beings, right. is is so hurtful and it's very, very painful to see. And um, I would say that I, because we met at a youth conference at One Young World Run, um, the youth holds the key to unlock the future. And I'm very, very optimistic about them because they have found new ways of doing things. Sometimes I call them shortcuts, which are not good, but they have found new ways. They pushed us to be improved versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would also add one thing on a note of great respect for the people who are older or part of the aging population in our world. They're taking the first hit. They've been sacrificed for the economies, which they have built up for us to enjoy and thrive off from. Uh, They're not being respected, not only in COVID, but I think also in the digital space. Um, We've left them behind. You know, sometimes we're a bit disrespectful. I mean, sometimes, I mean, probably even with my own mum, I would say, oh, it's okay. I mean, I didn't teach you how to do that. I'll just do it for you. But um, there is no replacement for experience, hard-worn, hard-earned experience. And there is no replacement for the wisdom that is drawn from those experiences that older people have over us. And um, maybe that comes back to the Asian culture again. Elton John um, said this to me. He said that as someone who's now in his 70s, hard to believe that he he's already in his 70s, but he felt very disrespected um, by being in the UK at this time as an older person. Um, this was before the vaccines came out, so I should properly timestamp that. But I, I I agree with him that um, we shouldn't look at them as the elderly or as old people and dismiss them with that kind of intent of language. But we should see them as our elders, people that we look to, people that we respect and people that we aspire to. And um, I know people don't mean to be cruel most of the time, um, but I think love, kindness and graciousness carries one 
very, very far in life. And the other lesson that I learned from my dad and also from my great friend, Jeanne, is you can never regret generosity. Right. Even if the other person does not appreciate it, even if the other person treats you cruelly, uh, in spite of what you've done for them, you can never regret generosity. And so just go for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I agree with everything that, that you've said. And uh, my, my little piece of optimism that I'll share uh, to add to all of the optimism that you shared is that I have this deep-rooted belief that the vast majority of, of the people in the world are good, honest uh, loving people who just want to leave this place better than they found it. Um, and I think a hundred percent of the people in the world, there's at least a spark of that in them. Uh, and I think that there's, there's a trend where that's going to become, uh, more and more exposed, uh, more and more powerful, uh, that, that there's a lots of, um, you know, technology is never going to be the, you know, the, the, the solution for everything, but there are technologies coming on board that are decentralizing technologies. And the more decentralized things become, the more those individual people can make a, make a, a big difference um, and set the, it would be a chain reaction and people will see, see the, the good that comes from that. And I think uh, a lot of the manipulation that we see um, are, is gonna be um, rooted out. It's gonna be exposed for what it is. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of the polarization and the divisiveness we see is, is artificially induced. And when those forcing functions, when those artificial uh, factors that are, are creating that are exposed for what they are, you're gonna see the, the good rise up from that. And so I'll, I'll, I'll throw that out uh, as my two cents of, uh, of optimism. But I wanna thank everybody who tuned in uh, tonight uh, or uh, in the morning <laughs> in China. Uh, I want to say happy happy Lunar New Year. I uh, hope you hope everybody has a, a great time tonight, and uh, and all the all the areas around the world that are celebrating that great holiday. And um, James, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience, uh, and and you've been really really generous with your time, and I and I really really appreciate it. You're you're a good friend. I thank everybody who helped bring me to this point. Uh, that's not my own work, but the work of the people around me who uh, were so generous in doing that through the years. And like you, Ron, um, I thank everyone who has uh, chosen to share their time with us today and to you, Ron, because you're incredible. You're a really incredible person and a very, very special person, a kind a kind person. Right back, right back at you. <laughs> All right. We'll see, see you guys next week. Uh, I have a wonderful actress, Arta DeBroshi. Uh, who has an incredible story, and it's, it's going to be a good episode next week as well. So see you next week. Cheers. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the Orbital Perspective, and thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. Mm -hmm.